Well, good morning. Like Andrew said, my name is Corey, and I'm the lead pastor here at GFC. We've never met, and I'm excited uh, to jump into our conversation today because this is the last week of Luke, sort of. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Okay, so we started this conversation at the beginning of the year. Uh, Hope has a name. We wanted Hope to be something we were remembering and focusing on this year for our church family as we interacted with people outside the church, as we interacted with just anybody. We wanted Hope to be something that we would exude to others, and finding ourselves in places that feel like there's not a lot of hope can be fairly easy, right? We lose a job, or we have a relationship situation, or there's a family situation, and there's just, there's tension there, and it feels like at times... Things can be a, a little bit of a hopeless place. And so we wanted to say, well, if we know Jesus, we're not hopeless, right? We understand that Jesus is the hope of the world. And so we start off the year by saying hope has a name. We've ended this conversation the last five or so weeks and said his name is Jesus. And so this is something that we've been focused on all year. We hope that it will continue to be a focus for us. And the way that we did this was we went through the book of Luke. So we started at the beginning and we kind of tracked through, stopped in a few spots along the way. And now we're coming to the very end. Now, here's the thing. We are going to wrap up Luke today. We're going to get to the very end of Luke. But here's the thing. This is what we did at the beginning of the year. We didn't do Luke chapter 2. Because Luke chapter 2 is the Christmas story. So we didn't want to go from Christmas last year and then start Luke and jump into the Christmas story again. So spoiler alert, we're going into Christmas next week. We're still in Luke. So if you're tired of Luke, I'm sorry. Okay, we've got a little bit left and then we'll switch gears. Don't just not show up for Christmas though. We're going to go through chapter 2 like we normally do for Christmas and then we'll be there. So we're getting to the end of the book, but we're going to cycle back for Christmas and do a little bit more of Luke. But I'm excited to have this conversation today. It's cool anytime you go through a whole book of the Bible, because you can just kind of see the layout. And specifically for a gospel, we've got a great picture, if you've been here over the course of the year, of just what Jesus's life was like, what the disciples' life was like, what his ministry was like. And so when we do that, we kind of complete that. It's it's a fun thing to go through and complete a book of the Bible, and I hope you'd, you enjoyed it this year, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as we give it a, a good last hurrah here over the next couple of weeks. So here's where we are. We're in Luke chapter 24, so we're going to pick up there in verses 13 and 14. This is after the resurrection. So again, like we didn't do a ton recently on on the crucifixion because we did that at Easter, right? But now we're after the resurrection. So we're picking up the story while Jesus is still on earth. He has come back from the dead and like he's interacting with different people, okay? So we're taking this point to kind of see what's going on in the lives of of his disciples. And like I've said over the last few weeks, this was a moment in time that seemed fairly hopeless for his followers. And we've seen that over the last couple weeks. We'll see that today. They were not in a spot where they were real excited about this. Jesus, we just learned last week, he's back. But many of them, and like we'll see today, they didn't really believe it yet. They didn't trust it. They didn't understand that that would be the case. And so Luke 24, starting in verses 13 and 14, this is what it says. That same day, this is the same day that they found the tomb empty. Okay, so this is Resurrection Sunday. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. We get this. This is the same thing that would happen if we're just driving along and we're talking about the things of the day. Remember when that guy escaped from prison? What was everybody talking about? 
the guy that escaped from prison, right? Where is he? Why can't they find him? I wonder where he's going For two weeks, that's all we talked about. So this was the same thing. This had just happened for them. They're walking along. They're talking about the news. They're talking about what they experienced. They're talking about what they saw, what they, what they thought about what was going on. So they're just walking along, having this conversation as we would. Verses 15 and 16. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. Obvious question. Why did God keep them from recognizing him? You want to know the real answer? I don't know. I don't know. It's one of those interesting things. And there's actually a couple of times in this passage today that we're looking at where Jesus gets a little funny. Like he does some things. You're like, I think he's just messing with the disciples. Like I think he's a funny guy and he just does. So for whatever reason, they didn't recognize him. And God kept them from recognizing him at that moment. We don't know why. There's no real big feel, at least not that I've found. It just, for whatever reason, there's this moment for many of the followers, when they see Jesus' resurrected body, there's kind of this, like, I don't know who that, they, they don't quite recognize him. And so, at this moment, he walks along, has, starts to have the conversation, and they don't recognize him. So, in verses 17 and 18, it says, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, said, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. So this is very interesting to me. He, he just walks up and says, what are you guys talking about? And it, that question in and of itself makes them stop. Like, how do you not know what's going on? And his answer, are you the only one? What translation to today? Do you live under a rock? What, how do you not know what's going on? And this is very interesting to me because this tells us that everybody in Jerusalem knew what was happening. This wasn't an isolated event. This wasn't just something that some people knew about and others didn't, right? We could pick a different topic, like pop culture conversation or different show or different whatever, and you may have a ton of information on it, and somebody else may have no idea. Everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in this area knew exactly what was happening. This did not happen in in an isolated form everybody knew about Jesus. Everybody knew what was going on. I mean, remember, the whole council went to Pilate. So this was a massive ordeal. It had stolen the conversation of the day in Jerusalem. And their response is, how do you not know? Like, we would even assume this is such a big deal. If someone walked up and just asked us what we were talking about, you would just know what we were talking about. This is such a big deal. So this was not something that just nobody knew about. Everybody knew about this and part of the conversation. And they are shocked that Jesus would even ask them, what are you talking about? Verse 19, he toys with them. What things? Jesus knows. He knows exactly what they're talking about. Because first of all, he's God, but he also knows everything that happened because he was there. So this is where I think he's just messing with them. So he goes, what things? Jesus asked, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, he said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Verses 20 to 21. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Verses 22, 24. Then some women from our group of followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. Verses 25, 26. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. 
You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Verse 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and of all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's what I believe is true from this interaction with these two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. They didn't believe that Jesus was actually alive. Why would you leave? Why would you leave town? If somebody found a grave that was empty of someone you loved, why would you just leave and walk seven miles, right? They weren't going to get some milk. They were, they were leaving. Why? Well, they didn't believe it. And they even said about the women finding the tomb, right? We kind of talked about this last week where they came back. The other disciples didn't believe it. So like, maybe the women found it. Maybe it was the wrong tomb. Maybe they've gone through this traumatic experience. They were hoping they saw this, but they didn't really see. Like, there's a lot of reasons why maybe this wasn't true. And so they, they didn't believe it. And this one verse, verse 21, is the one that stands out to me from this conversation. It said, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Right? Think about that for a moment. We had hoped he was the Messiah. That says they lost it. They don't hope anymore. Now they're convinced he's not. Because the Messiah wasn't supposed to die like this. The Messiah wasn't supposed to go down this way. The Messiah was supposed to save Israel. That's what he was supposed to do. And yet, that's not what he did at this moment. Here's what I also know. Their view of what the Messiah was supposed to do was this big when it should have been this big. And we'll get there in a minute. There's, there's a phrase that comes to mind as I as I thought about this uh, this week, and it's a phrase that I've heard used. It's actually, I think it originated over in Europe with um, fans of soccer teams, okay? And the phrase is this. They'll use this every once in a while. It says, that it's, it's the hope that kills you. And, and one of the things that's true, if you've been on a team or you've been part of sports or whatever, and, and you just, I've said this before, if you go into a game and you're expecting to lose, it's just like, okay, we lost. Like, that's what we thought was going to happen. But when you really think you're going to win and you have the odds in your favor and things seem to be going well and all that, that's when you lose and you're like, this is the worst, right? Because you had hope. You wanted that to be true. You wanted to grab onto that. And yet, when it seems to all fall apart, that's what kills you. And for the moment with these guys walking on the road, they had such hope that this was going to be the case and they lost it. And they didn't believe, even as they're walking and talking to Jesus, they didn't have hope that he was actually the Messiah that they thought he was. I think this is also true, that I want us to get in this interaction from, with Jesus and these guys, and then we'll see it later too. It's that even those closest to Jesus will find themselves in seemingly hopeless circumstances. The key word there is the one in yellow, right? Seemingly. We as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, like, or listening, wherever you are, that there will still come times where it seems hopeless. You lose a job and you don't know what you're going to do. Your marriage struggles and you don't know how to fix it. Your kids are doing things and you're not sure how to interact with that. Or there's a, an employer that you've got and they, you just don't understand what's going on there. Or like, there, there are moments where it's like, I don't know what to do with this and I don't have the ability to fix it. And that's where the guys in the road to Emmaus find themselves. And it's where they, the disciples found themselves for a amount of time. The, the, it, this was a seemingly hopeless 
circumstance, there will still be times when we don't know what to do. I'm going to let that sit for a minute, and we'll come back to it at the end, okay? Seemingly hopeless is still something that we may experience. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Here's the rest of that story. The guys on the road to Emmaus, they walk with Jesus. They go the seven miles, okay? It's, again, this is another place where Jesus kind of messes with them. It says Jesus actually acted like he was going to travel farther, and the guys on the road were like, no, 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 will you stay and have more conversation with us? And Jesus is kind of like, all right, I guess so. And so like he stays and he sits and has dinner with them. And while he's having dinner with them, they realize who it is. When he breaks bread, they had seen him do this before. It clicks for whatever reason and they realize who it is. So what do they do? Obviously, they go back to Jerusalem. Okay, so they just went seven miles. I'm pretty sure the, the stroll there was a little leisurely. They may have run the seven miles back. So they run back to have a conversation with the disciples because now the women have found the empty tomb and they've now seen Jesus. So they've got to tell everybody else. Now all of a sudden hope is back. So fast forwarding in Luke 24 verse 35, this is what it says. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread, verses 36 to 37. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with, be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Now, this is one of those times, by the way, this happens to me too. I was reading this and studying this. I would not have told you that the two guys from Emmaus were there with the disciples when Jesus showed up. I forgot that part, or I just never like read it and realized it. It's one of those things with scripture. Sometimes you just see things you didn't see before. So this tells us, again, the guys on the road to Emmaus were not just some people that were in the crowds of people that were following Jesus. They knew the disciples well enough that they would go hang out with them. So they run back and they go tell them. And as they're talking about it, Jesus is in the room all of a sudden. I'm telling you a story. I can't believe it. We saw Jesus. He was on the road. And then all of a sudden he shows up again. Jesus with the funny in verse 38 to 40. Why are you frightened? Well, why do you think Jesus? In one of the other gospels, it says that he showed up. The, the doors were locked. They, they were locking themselves in because they're scared that the guys that just killed Jesus are going to come show up for them, and Jesus just appears. And he's like, why are you scared? And we're like, okay, Jesus, like, you know why we're scared. So why are you scared? He asked, why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41 to 43. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. This is one of the funniest scenes in the Bible, if you can picture it. He's just sitting there eating fish, and he's got like 12 guys sitting around just watching him. Like, is he really going to? Like, they're still pinching themselves, trying to figure out, are we dreaming? Like, what's happening? Are we all seeing the same thing? Is this really the case? Right? Okay, let's give him some fish. Let's see if he actually eats it. And they're just watching him as he eats. And so he does. And then in verses 44 to 45, it says, Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If we finished out chapter 24... It would just tell him about how he went and he ascended into 
heaven. And if you want a more detailed description of that, go to the book of Matthew. That gives us more about the great, what we would call the Great Commission, right? And so this is, this is the last bit that Luke gives us of Jesus's life. Now we know from other uh, gospels that Jesus went to different people all this time and he went and appeared to 500 people at a time and there were different groups of people that that saw him. And so he spent the last 40 days on earth that he was here appearing to different people and showing them that he was back and he had risen and they had all seen it. Again, remember, everybody in Jerusalem knew about this. And so there were people that spent a lot of time with Jesus. This wasn't a mistake that he was alive. He showed up, had meals with them, interacted with them, all of those kinds of things as he was around. And he spent his time showing them that the hope they thought they had was really the hope that they had. Even though they doubted, even though they lost it, even though they felt like it was gone and he wasn't the Messiah that they thought he was, that they could still have that hope that he was there to rescue Israel and even to rescue everyone. So I want to ask this question as we come to the end of this conversation. Here's, this is what we're going to talk about today. Why is Jesus the hope of the world? Why would we make that claim? It's easy, I think, if you've grown up connected to church in some way, someone just says Jesus is the hope of the world and you just kind of go, sure, makes sense. No one came in when we put a banner out there that said, hope has a name and his name is Jesus. Nobody came and was like, are you serious? Like, this is shocking to us. So like, we, if you've been in church, you just kind of think this way. But if you haven't spent a lot of time in church or it's not familiar to you, you haven't interacted with this idea, like, it, it's a bold statement to say. That just no matter what the difficulty, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, if you introduce Jesus into that situation, there's automatically hope. And there's people that would say that's ridiculous because Jesus isn't real. Well, that's ridiculous because Jesus wasn't God. Or it's ridiculous because that's just a silly claim to make and God is an idea we've created and all all this stuff. And so when, when we make this statement, we are not saying something small. We're saying that what we would hand to everybody, that we would want to know hope, we would just point them to Jesus and we found that to be true. And this can be difficult for followers of Jesus too. Like there's moments in life where we get to those seemingly hopeless moments and we go, what is God doing? I guarantee when the disciples were in between that time where Jesus had died and he hadn't come back yet, there were moments where like, why would Jesus allow that to happen? Why would he, why wouldn't he could walk on water? Why couldn't he just call angels down or call a storm down or whatever and like mess with you. Don't go down this way. Like why would Jesus allow that to happen? We thought we knew. And as Christians, we can get into that space too. We thought we knew. So why is Jesus the hope of the world? There's three things I want to talk about today. and I'll flesh them out with some other passages as well. This is a good spot. If you didn't grab the follow along that Andrew told you about earlier, the little QR code that's on the back of your next steps card, Go ahead and do that if you want, because I'm going to bounce around a little bit. So if you don't want to be flipping around or trying to figure it out, go to our follow along. It'll help you keep up with the conversation the last little bit here. So here's the first thing I want to talk about. Uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of a story centuries in the making. In both of these situations where Jesus is talking to the guys on the road and then he's talking to the disciples, when they start to have the realization that this is Jesus, the first thing he does is take them to the, what we would call the Old Testament, right? They wouldn't call it that. They would call it the law and the prophets. But we call it the Old Testament. So the first thing he does is, let me rewind the tape for you. And let me help you understand, why would he do that? 
because it matters that Jesus was the fulfillment of a story and not simply an isolated event. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to take us to three places briefly, okay? The first place I want to take us is Genesis chapter 12, starting, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3, okay? It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we're 12 chapters into the Bible, and God is making this promise to Abram. He'll become Abraham, but it's Abram at the moment, making this promise to say, All of the families of the world will be blessed through you. How would you feel if God made you that promise? That'd be pretty cool, right? Like everybody on earth that's ever going to exist is going to be blessed through you. Why? Because he was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Where did Jesus come from? The nation of Israel. All of this would take, coming down through, and the lineage and everything would bring Jesus to the world. We could cycle back a little bit further in Genesis if we wanted to. But this is one of the promises that's made that we know is setting the stage for Jesus to arrive. Now, I don't know all the verses, okay, that Jesus shared with them. But here's what he said, right? He said the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So here's one. This is from the law. There's other places we could go. We don't have time. We could spend a whole semester going through all this stuff, okay? But this is one of them. So we've got one from the law. Let's fast forward a little bit to Isaiah. I talked about Isaiah 53 at least last week or the week before. It's a great chapter to read alongside the crucifixion. Okay, we're not going to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. We're going to pick up in verse 57. It says this, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. This is one of those moments if we looked back, at where Jesus is interacting with Pilate and Jesus is on trial, he says very little. You would, if you were on trial for something you didn't do, you were unjust, don't you think you would talk a little bit or you'd at least want your lawyer to talk? Like, get me out of this. Jesus is very quiet when he's on trial. Uh, Verse eight, unjustly condemned, we know that. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. We know Jesus wasn't married. He didn't have any kids. That his life was cut off short midstream, 33, pretty young, right? But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Verse 9, he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Now, think about that last phrase. He was buried like a criminal. When Jesus was killed, he was killed on a cross between two thieves. So he received a criminal sentence for something he didn't do. And it says, put in a rich man's grave. Joseph of Arimathea is the guy who comes along and says, can I put him in a grave? You didn't own, you didn't have grave sites back then unless you were rich. Costs a lot of money to have a place to die before you're actually dead, especially back then. Because they had to cut it into a cave. It was a process, right? They weren't just digging, digging holes in the ground. So the fact that Joseph of Arimathea comes along and says, I'll put him in a grave. This is fulfilled. He was put in a rich man's grave, even though Jesus didn't have a grave for himself. So now we've got the law, right? We went to Genesis, went to the prophets, all right? We got to Isaiah. So now let's go to the Psalms, because Jesus mentions the Psalms too. In Psalm 22, 
starting in verses 12 to 13. It says, My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. 14 and 15, My life is poured out like water, and my bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Now, let's pause for a second and just think through what we know happened at the crucifixion. It says, my life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. We know when you were crucified that because your arms are stretched this way and you have to pull yourself up to breathe, many times the, your shoulders would come out of their sockets or your elbows would come out of their sockets. Like your, your body would start to break down because you're just being hung there and you've got to pull yourself up. So bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. We also know if you look at the crucifixion account that when Jesus, they wanted to make sure Jesus was dead, they stabbed him through the side with a spear. And when they did that, blood and water flowed out. Why did that happen? Because in this situation of crucifixion, we also know that a sack of water would um, accumulate around your heart. So when they stabbed him through his side and blood and water comes out, we, we assume that they stabbed through his heart. So my heart is like wax. You would feel that, right? You would feel the tension on your heart if that's the kind of stress it was under to be felt, to be having a sack of water on it. My strength is dried up, sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. On the cross, Jesus asks for a drink. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Verses 16 to 18. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. The evil An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. No explanation needed for that one, except for the fact that crucifixion wasn't invented when this was written. So there's no reason for them to write this other than it was a prophecy looking forward to the time of Jesus. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at my feet, stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And we know that the soldiers who killed Jesus were gambling to, to spread out his clothes, to have, lay claim to his clothes. So we've got the law in Genesis, we've got Isaiah in the prophets, and we've got the Psalms in Psalm 22, all pointing forward to Jesus. Again, I don't know the verses that Jesus walked them through, but I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't go to some of these passages and say, remember how you saw that happen? Remember when you saw them dividing my garments up and casting lots? Look, it's right here in, in Psalms. It all points forward to Jesus. And I, I would say this, that hope is found not just in a solution to our problems, but in an answer to our identity. Let me explain this for a minute, okay? Sometimes we run to Jesus and we run to salvation because we have a problem. Ultimately, we all have a problem. That problem is sin. We don't want the consequences of that problem. We want to be restored in our relationship with God. So we, we trust Jesus and we say we want to be reconnected with God. We want salvation. And so we give our lives to Jesus. That all makes sense. But here's the thing. Imagine for a minute that the Old Testament does not exist. It doesn't exist. Okay, so let's just throw it away for a moment. And we get this guy, Jesus, who just shows up in history and says, I've got a message from God. You guys need to be forgiven for your sins, and I'm going to do that for you. And he shows us through all of the things that typical Jesus does, right? He walks on water, water into wine, raises people from the dead. That guy shows up in history and says, I've got a message from God. You need me, and I'm going to reconnect you to God. And we would ask the question, would we believe him? 
Maybe. Like, that's pretty convincing if you can do all the miracles Jesus did. But here's the difference. If he just showed up in a vacuum, all of a sudden Jesus is there and he decides all these things. He offers us a solution to our problems. But here's what it does when we look at the whole Old Testament and we see all the ways that it's connected to Jesus is it gives us an identity as people of God. It points us all the way back to the creator of the universe who says, I created you, I have a plan for you, I have a purpose for you, and I didn't just put you out there and just let you go. I love you enough that when we were separated, I sent my son to save you. And now it's not just I have a solution to my problem. It's that the creator of the universe loves me and has a reason for my life. And I can rest in him and understand and trust him rather than just having a fix for the problem I perceive I have. It changes the perspective completely and connects us to a bigger story. One of the cool things I've seen over the last uh, couple of months is this picture that we're going to put up on the screen for you. Um, It just looks like a pretty rainbow. Here's what this is a picture of. All of those bottom white and gray-ish lines are all scripture references. All of the lines that are drawn are all the places that they reference to other verses in the Bible. So every one of those lines that you see is a connection to another piece in Scripture. This is a representation of all the times that the Bible references itself. Why does that matter? Because it's the creation of a story that is connected all the way from beginning to end. This doesn't, this doesn't, happen, this doesn't happen all the time with other, other stories. But books that were written thousands of years apart, writing about references at the front. And what you see is all the way there at the end on that side would be all the Gospels. But look at how many times all the books before it reference to the Gospels and how many times they reference backwards. It's a story that shows us we have an identity in God. And it's not just that Jesus is a solution to the problem. It's that we are known and we're here on on purpose. And that the God of the universe loves us enough to write a story that we also get to be a part of, which is pretty cool. And so we, we have to understand when we think about this and why Jesus is the hope of the world. It's that he was a, the fulfillment of a story centuries in the making. He wasn't just in a vacuum. He gets to present to us our identity as children of God. And not just for the Jews, but to everybody. So number one. He was the fulfillment of a story centuries in the making. Here's the second thing. I think this is important. Jesus didn't look like the Messiah they expected. Okay? He didn't look like the Messiah they expected. Now, why is, why is that a big deal? Because I think as humans, it's easy for us to choose God or gods that just fit our needs. We might have a few things. We say, okay, they give us prosperity. They give us whatever. Jesus did not look like what his immediate followers even thought he would look like. They thought he was going to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus even spoke about that a few times to try and get them out of that headspace, and they still didn't believe it. He didn't look like that. What, what does that do for us? It says that this is not a God created by us. It's a God that created us. And when we look back at God and say, well, you should do this, he goes, no, I know better than you. Right? You should do it this way or this. I wish this would work out. And he goes, nope, different idea. Like this is how I'm going to work it because I have the whole picture. It shows us that it's not just us 
It's not just something we created. It's someone that we can come to know and understand. And I would say this to kind of help us process it. Don't allow our preferred version of Jesus to cloud out our vision of the true Jesus. There are moments in time, and this is where the hopelessness comes in, where we would prefer God to do something different. We would prefer him to look a different way. We would prefer him to make a decision differently. And we would pray for things, and and God would say, no, I'm not going that direction. And at those moments, there are times when it's tempting to look at our preferred version and say, well, this God or God of the Bible or Jesus is not my preferred version. Therefore, I'm going to move away from him. But when we submit ourselves to a God that isn't just our preferred version, we're actually submitting ourselves to the true God. Why? Because if God was just someone we preferred, he's just the God we created, not the God that we are coming to know and serving and understanding through the life of Jesus. So this is, this is where it becomes very difficult because it's very, very tempting for us to find ourselves wanting to just serve the God that looks like what we want or does the things that we want him to do. And when that doesn't happen, it's very tempting to say, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not chasing after this. He clearly doesn't have what's best in mind. But what do we see through the life of the disciples? Even when they had lost hope, even when Jesus didn't look the way that they thought he was supposed to, or do the things that he was supposed to do in their minds, he was that hope that they needed, even though they didn't know what they needed. If you've ever dealt with, you know, small kids at times or, or having students, or they might think at times, and we might think at times, I know what I need. Or maybe you've gone to the doctor for an issue. I know what I need. And the doctor or the teacher or the official looks at you and says, nope, that's not what you need. You need this over here. And even though we would think we know what we need, when that person says to us, no, that, that's, that's not the way you should go. That's not the right path. We have to trust them because they know better. And at times when things feel hopeless, we have to look at Jesus and say, I trust you because you know better. We can't get stuck in our preferred version of Jesus. Here's the third thing. That moments that seem hopeless to us lack certainty, not Jesus. Listen to me. Anytime that we feel things are hopeless, it's because we lack certainty. You lost a job. You don't know what the next one's going to be. You're uncertain. You're not hopeless. Your marriage is struggling. You're uncertain about how this is going to play out and what it's going to look like moving forward and how you're going to save it. It's not hopeless. It's uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen five years from now. We don't know what our future looks like. We can get hopeless about that. I don't know where I'm going to be. I don't know what I'm going to accomplish. We can get worried about that. It's not hopeless. It's uncertain. And every time we feel hopeless, it's because we're uncertain. Things can look bad. They can look very bad. Even when we see a bad thing happen. Like, I didn't want this to happen. This was bad. You don't know what's coming on the other side of it. We don't know what's coming on the other side of it. We're uncertain. Hopeless moments lack certainty. They don't lack Jesus. So when the disciples and the guys on the road to Emmaus are all like, hope's gone. He died. Not the guy we thought he was. We're out of here. We're going to go to Emmaus. They lacked certainty. They didn't go to the tomb. Interestingly enough, right? what was the conversation they had? Yep, tomb was empty. 
women said there were angels there. We don't really believe it. They didn't know what had happened. They lacked certainty. But did they lack Jesus in that moment? No, they were walking and talking with him. They just didn't realize it. So I don't want to minimize anything we walk through, but I do want us to understand when we know Jesus, there are moments that are going to show up that are seemingly hopeless. But it's because we lack certainty, not hope. And Jesus doesn't walk away and just go, well, you're on your own. See you later, guys. No, he says that you just don't understand it at the moment. But Jesus is still there. Jesus is still a part of it. And he's still walking with us. As we wrap up this conversation, I want to go back to the beginning of Luke for a minute. To verses 3 and 4 of Luke 1. This is what Luke says at the very beginning of the book. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. I want you to know the truth. There's going to be moments where we can be uncertain and it seems hopeless. But the question is, do we know the truth? And the reason Luke wrote this book that we spent so much time studying is because he wanted us to know the truth. The truth is, Jesus is always there. The truth is, Jesus is the hope of the world. The truth is, Jesus overcame the grave. The truth is, Jesus is a fulfillment of all this conversation that we've been having from the Old Testament all the way to what we'll get to in the New Testament, right? All of it. And even when things seem hopeless, when he's involved, it's never hopeless, but there are moments we're uncertain. And in those moments, we have to remind ourselves, what is the truth? What do I know about Jesus? Who do I know he was? And those hopeless moments, they don't lack Jesus. They lack certainty. We have to remember who Jesus is in those moments to be able to move forward and to live in hope as hopeful people and to hand hope to others as well. So here's my last question for us. How is God asking you to place your hope in him when, you're la- when you lack certainty in your circumstances? How is God asking you to place your hope in him when you lack certainty in your circumstances? A couple weeks ago, we did that prayer time at the end of the service, and, you know, different people raised their hands for different needs that they, they're just silent needs, right? Just going through something, someone pray for me, right? Some of us are in this moment, and we lack certainty. We don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know what this looks like. The question is, do we know the truth? The question is, do we trust Jesus in that moment, even when he doesn't do things the way we think it should be done. It's hard for us. We don't get it. Do we understand that as followers of Jesus, we don't lack hope, we lack certainty. And Jesus is always there walking with us even when we don't understand. I'd be willing to bet, like if we just talked about this individually, we'd all be in places where we'd go, there was a time in life, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know the answer. I needed funds, or I needed a job, or I needed a relationship, or I needed a solution. I needed a procedure. All of it. Like, I did not know what was going to happen. It was so uncertain, and I did not feel hopeful about that at all. And yet, somehow, some way, we would look at that and go, but God showed up. And he did something I didn't know could be done. I didn't know it would be done. I didn't know that he was going to show up in that way, right? 
And yet still at times, even though when we go through those times where God shows up in an amazing way, we still get to the next time and we are tempted to go, man, it's so hopeless. I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know what he's doing. And we just look back at those other circumstances and go, but God showed up that other time. We didn't know what was going to happen, but Jesus knew and he showed up. The question is, do we trust him? So like I said, I don't don't want to minimize anything anybody's going through. But I want us to get to the space where we go, I'm lacking certainty, but I don't lack Jesus. And when Jesus is involved, there's always hope. I don't know what that looks like yet. I don't know what he's doing. But there's hope in that. And there's hope that we can have as followers of Jesus. And there's hope that we can hand to others who don't know him yet. Let's pray. Jesus, we... I, I'm grateful. I think we're grateful for, for this book. They, Luke says in, in chapter 1, he wanted to write an account. He wanted to write a true account of what happened so that we could be certain, so Theophilus could be certain, and then we can be certain as we read it, of who you are and what you've done and what we can know through you. God, there are times where you don't do what we think should be done. You didn't overthrow the government like your followers thought. Maybe you don't do exactly what we think you should do as your followers, but we know that you've got everything planned out. Nothing is a surprise to you. Nothing changes your mind. You you know exactly where you're going and what's happening. And in moments where we feel far from you or we feel hopeless, we feel whatever, I, I pray that we would cling to you. That we would recognize we're uncertain, but we're not hopeless. And that we would look to you as the fulfillment of this story that's thousands of years long. That you are a God that loves us, cares for us, has a plan for us. And that we would trust that completely. That we would never trade our version of you for the true version of you. Even when that's difficult to understand. I pray that we would come alongside one another in those difficult circumstances and say, we're here for you, we got you. And that we could walk together as people of hope, sharing that hope with people who don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen.